My name is Melissa. My name is Katie. My name is Ashley Brooke. My name is is Emma Christensen. And I am a survivor of sex trafficking in America. Hello, and welcome to season one of our podcast, Selling Girls in America. This show is dedicated to shedding light on the crime of sex trafficking in America. We want to give a voice to survivors of this crime as well as discuss prevention methods to stop more people from becoming victims. I'm your host, Randy, a writer and podcaster, and I just learned about human trafficking in the United States. I wanted to put this podcast together with Guardian Group to learn more about these crimes and get answers to questions, questions that I think most Americans would have. Joining me shortly is Jeff Teagues, a military veteran with over 25 years of service in the Army and Chief Operations Officer of Guardian Group, a nonprofit organization that fights human trafficking within the United States. The following episode contains distressing content regarding sex trafficking. This may be triggering for those with lived experience or their families. Please proceed with caution. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. I really appreciate it, uh, you guys being here. And uh, we're, we're uh, joined today uh, with uh, Jeff. He'll be speaking a little later. And Amanda, who's also another team member of Guardian Group. So I'm going to let Amanda introduce herself and, uh, and explain why she's a part of Guardian Group and when she got started here, and then we'll move on with the rest of the podcast. Go ahead, Amanda. Okay, so I met Jeff, um, the founder of Guardian Group, in 2010 at the very inception because I was one of the only people in town who also believed that sex trafficking was happening in our community. So when we met, we started talking just about the work that I was doing. I was working with a runaway. Um, I was working, running a runaway youth homeless shelter. So working with young people, vulnerable populations, and I was seeing trafficking happening in the young girls and boys that I was serving there. And so really started to think that, you know, started to see that sex trafficking was something that didn't just occur overseas. And it was kind of my first um, first realization that it was taking place in the United States. I had previously lived in Eastern Europe in Prague, and I had seen human trafficking on that side. And um, when I came back to the United States, just didn't realize that it was happening uh, in the U.S. as well. So when I was running that shelter, realized that human trafficking was an issue here as well, met Jeff, and we started a 10-year friendship where we worked together in collaboration. We started what's called our CSEC team here together. Um, Jeff started it, but I was his first member. So I, I was the we met for the first time in my one tiny office, just talking about how, what we wanted and what, what we wanted this to be, who should be invited in. And uh, I'm not sure if you've covered CSEC on this podcast yet, but it's the Commercial Sexual Exploitation of Children. It's a, a group of multidisciplinary uh, members of the community that come together. So it'll be like juvenile justice and um, you know people like Guardian Group and victims advocates who come together to work in a community space on, on the issue of, of trafficking of minors and children. Um, so then last year, I would say in the very end of 2018, near Thanksgiving, he came to me and said, you know, a guardian group is really growing and you've been a part of this team in some capacity or another for a long time. We'd love if you could join the team in a full-time capacity, but if not, we're going to need to move on without you. Um, love for you to help us hire somebody, but we're going to need to fill this full-time role. And it, I, it took about a month, um, really thought about it, did a lot of internal reflection on what that meant. I was At that time, I was the executive director for a Boys and Girls Club, 
and, and loved that job. It's, I mean, it's wonderful to be able to work in service of young people, but really felt the call to do more in the prevention space of human trafficking. I think that as a community, we've often reacted, but not been proactive about fighting this crime. And being a person who sat across the table from too many young people, you know, 13, 14, 15-year-old girls who have been, you know, traumatized by this horrific crime, I really felt that it was time for me to join Guardian Group full-time. So I called Jeff Keith on December 1st, 2018 at 7 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I will never forget because I was sitting Pacific outside. Time. And I was, Pacific time. Yeah, Pacific time, Pacific Standard Time. And I won't forget because I was really nervous. It was a big, it was kind of, um, you know, it was, a, it was a big move, you know, leaving leaving where I was at and taking this like kind of leap of faith. But I called him and I said, Hey, is that offer still on the table? And he was like, yeah, we, we've decided to pause the hiring process until after the new year. And I was like, I'll take it. Don't give it to anybody else. If you still want me. And he was like, really? And, and that's, that was a year ago. So now I've been a part of this team for a year and couldn't be happier. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah. I, I just want to comment too, because, um, Again, Amanda has been working in this space for 10 years, and I was introduced to her as a, as a subject matter expert. And a lot of the structure and concepts and strategies that we built around Guardian Group was based upon what, what she knew and had learned. And when I was introduced to Amanda, that was my first question to Jeff Keith was, why isn't this lady working for us? Like, when, when, when does this happen? And then again, um, what's interesting and exciting about building your own team and having the opportunity with Guardian Group is it's it's how this has happened. We've we've had people come and go, and uh, this core structure that we have now is 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 really re- really ready for some growth. And uh, I can't under I can't understate how valuable Amanda has been to Guardian Group even long before she became uh, a full time partner with us. So, just want to throw that out there. Now I've only met uh, besides yourself. I only know other two other employees, and everyone seems. Everyone seems super like qualified for everything they're doing and super invested. I mean, everyone is like all in, and that's that's uh, that's amazing. Good. I think that that is one of the reasons that I mean, this this subject material and the work can be really difficult and it can be emotionally draining. But that's one of the things I love the most about Guardian Group is that even though this is a hard space to work in, this team is so passionate and so committed that coming to work every day feels really something. Like truly enjoy the people I work with. And it makes it, you know, when you're dealing with these difficult cases and, you know, I spend most of my day reading or writing about the trafficking of minors and, and women, um, which people often say like, how do you, you know, how does that play a role in your mental health? And I'm like, well, it's a really great team and very supportive and positive work environment. So I think that Guardian Group really is, you know, this special place that brings people who are truly passionate and dedicated and, incredible in the space that they work in and are willing to um, be so collaborative with one another. Are you, are you responsible for a lot of the blog posts? That is all Dre. So she's, (laughs) she's wonderful. We share an office. I, um, and she's just one of my favorite people. So. Cool. Hey, uh, that was great to hear your story. Thanks for sharing that with us. All right. So today we're going to talk about the aftercare and restoration of the victims. So I don't know. I don't know what I don't know because I think I've uh, throughout this whole podcast I've shown that I don't know a whole lot about this. Um, but my my question is, when does that start? Are are the people non 
nonprofits, professionals, psychiatrists, therapists, um, all, all, I don't know if I've left anyone out. Are they involved with the police from like, hey, we know we're going into a human trafficking scenario, so we're bringing these people with us so that they can talk to them? Or are the police, you know, kind of jumping in there because they it's two o'clock in the morning they don't have anybody to bring with them but they bring them to back to the police station and then they contact these professionals uh i don't i don't know where where this part of the this phase starts yeah so in a perfect best case scenario is what would happen is that a if a police department knew that they were going to conduct a a sting where they may be offering services support to people who are being victimized, they would have in their community the opportunity to to bring out what's called a victim's advocate. So in a best case scenario, the resources are in the community. There are trained victim's advocates who work in the nonprofit space, and they are working collaboratively with police departments. And those the that detective or police officer would contact those victim advocates prior so that they could start to set up the opportunity to have, you know, to have clothes on site, food, um, and a safe place for anyone who wanted help um, to sleep and stay. And then from there, they would continue down the path of services. And that's best case scenario. So best case scenario is the police conduct a scene, a victim's advocate is there, uh, a girl is offered support and services, she decides to take those support and services, and a victim's advocate would then take it from there, providing her first with sleep, food, and um, sleep, food, and clothes, because oftentimes she's been deprived of all of those things. So in that first 72 hours, not a whole lot can be done um, outside of just providing a safe place, food, and, and, and clothes. So that is, you know, that kind of first 72 hours, best case scenario, what that looks like. Oftentimes in communities, sometimes if police haven't been educated and trained, they won't even know to call a victim's advocate. Um, and they will just go in and be then in a reactionary space if there is a, you know, a, a girl who needs help and support. Um, or sometimes there aren't those services that are in those communities. So, you know, it really just depends on the community uh, if those services are available. And if there is a trained advocate that is specific towards human trafficking, or if they are just relying on like a local domestic violence shelter, which is um, not ideal since this trauma and this crime is different than that of domestic violence. It mirrors in some ways. However, like the trauma and the experiences are, are different and unique, and they it does deserve to have its own own trained advocate. Uh, and that is in the case of that if the person is over the age of 18. If it's under the age of 18, it's different, triggers a different response. DHS, um, the Department of Human Services, Child Protective Services, would be called and get, in, and get involved. And again, best case scenario is that the detective um, would pre- uh, communicate with those uh, entities and that best case scenario, they follow their protocol and you get the right person out to that scene before law enforcement goes in. So it seems to me like, I mean, from a military standpoint, because military has their own victims advocates and all the bases and things like that, that police stations would have victim advocates like, uh, on like on pay on the payroll? No, is that not true? Sometimes, again, it depends on the police department, the size, and the you know, the um, different opportunities that they have in that jurisdiction. Hmm. 
Okay. So uh, physical needs uh, fixed, uh, sorted out first for the women who, and, and what, what, just off the top of your head, what's the percentages that say, yes, they want these as opposed to no, because it's all voluntary, right? Right. So with, so for instance, with domestic violence, it takes about four attempts to leave an abuser, but with human trafficking, it's seven attempts to leave an, an abuser. And it, this is because of the extreme trauma that is associated with this crime. This is a, you know, a young girl feeling like this is the only thing that she's good for, that she's been told a host and a pack of lies by her abuser and her trafficker. So oftentimes she may not be ready to accept help. But it is what is really important is offering and starting to dispel some of the lies and myths that she has been told by her abuser. So he, you know, he has probably told her that she is worthless, that she's the one that's committed a crime, that she will be punished, that um, there are no resources and services, that she's nothing but a, you know, a prostitute and therefore worthless in the eyes of society. So, and these, these lies feel very, very real and they, um, they really do the psychological damage to this person. So best case scenario again, is that police officers, victims, advocates have been trained in how to speak to someone who has gone through this kind of abuse to start to change those lies, to let them know that there are resources available and maybe you're not ready today, but maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's six months from now, but that we will be here. We, I always teach like it's really important to be consistent in your message. Uh, the best thing you can do with someone who has experienced extreme trauma and who has been lied to consistently is to be the one person who doesn't lie to them. So even if you are telling them hard truths or hard facts, as long as you don't lie, they will remember that. So I've worked with young people, you know, I've had 16-year-old girls who have run away from the shelter. I've been spit on and told that, you know, you just don't understand me. You have no idea, but, or I can't believe you're doing this to me. Like, how could you do this to me? You know, when I'm, I'm enforced or, you know, asking them to follow a certain set of rules or that there's, there's things that steps we need to follow. But 90% of the time, those girls returned at some point to the one place that they, that they remembered was safe and that I didn't lie. No matter what, I never, never lied to them. And I never, um, I always followed through with exactly what I was going to do. So if I said, I will be here at three and these are the resources I will have for you, I would be there at three with those exact resources. You know, even if they didn't show up, I was always there, you know, just being really consistent and showing that you will be the person in their life that didn't lie to them. Because again, anyone can be a victim of human trafficking, but oftentimes, you know, the most vulnerable populations are runaway homeless youth and foster care. And these young people, even before their trafficker or abuser got to them, have probably experienced a lot of pain um, in their in their households. They've, they've been lied to consistently. So you really have to become the person that they can rely on no matter what. So you say it says it takes seven times to leave their trafficker, but if their trafficker is about to be arrested, does that still apply? I mean, where else are, what, I mean, at that point, they're free with no money and no support. So it seems like they would be more likely to accept the help. Sometimes, 
in that instance, possibly, but, you know, traffickers often will post bail and be out quite quickly mm. while they await trial. And trial is a really, can be a really um, long process. You know, 18 months is probably the minimum, you know, 12 to 18 months is minimum, can take up to 24 to 36, like really depending on the nature of the crime. And, you know, if, if the trials get set over, repeatedly like we can see it drag out for a long period of time and then you know a young person again it's really hard for us to understand the level of trauma and the thought process like it just doesn't make sense but when you are experiencing that kind of trauma and that kind of pain it changes how your brain works and how it reacts so she may she may um uh, join up with another trafficker that she knows or a, or she may um, be working for him while he's still in, in jail and he might have contact and control over her. Depending on the level of manipulation and control, these predators are able to manipulate even if they're not in the same room. And they're, they're threats of violence. Like, if you don't do this, you know, I might be in jail right now, but my cousin is going to go, you know, will we'll come in and, and uh, you know, beat you up or take your child or, you know, whatever threat he is using to manipulate her. And she's aware that these threats are not empty. She's seen him do it to other people and he, and she's probably experienced his violence and his rage before. So, you know, we see victims who often will say like, I visited the emergency department and before I went in, he told me that, you know, the last John I had seen was a doctor or a nurse, or I have a friend who works at the hospital. So if you say anything or you do anything, like I'll know about it and you're not safe. And she, and she thinks that might be real. You know, she, she, you know, believes that like there's eyes everywhere. And when you have seen, you know, John's, when buyers are judges and lawyers and doctors, you know, you don't know the person that you're seeing, you know, could very well have been, you know, one of his, his clients. So the threat of violence and the fear tactics and the manipulation are so baked into her thought process that it's really hard to kind of separate that, like, the police are here, you're being offered help and support, why not just leave now? And then two, I've had girls who tell me, you know, hey, it might not be perfect, but what do you want me to do? You want me, I, I don't have a high school degree, I dropped out, my family doesn't want me, you know, I am, this is what I've been doing for the last two years, this is all I'm good at, and now you want me to do what I can't even get a job at McDonald's without a GED or a high school diploma. So what are my op options? Like, I'm going to be homeless and on the streets. Like, and we try to say, no, there are options. There are programs. Like, we can get you that kind of help. Yes, it will take work, but we, we can start this process. But sometimes there's like, no, I'm not ready for that. Like, I'm not ready to just suffer, you, you know, because it, it feels really insurmountable. Like, what am I going to do? Nobody's going to hire me. So um, what about... So uh, I guess some some states and cities are a little more progressive, but it's still prostitution. So where is the where do the police and authorities draw the line between prostitution? I'm going to take you in for prostitution, and you're going to be arrested for that. And you've been human trafficked. I'm going to find help for you. And how does that also apply to? Hey, are you going to accept uh, the offer of help? And if you say no, well, you're still a prostitute, so I'm going to arrest you. How does that work? Okay, so the difference between prostitution and trafficking. So for me personally, how I fall down on that is that there is no difference because I believe personally that that prostitution is a form of oppression 
inherently. So, you know, people often say, well, prostitution, it's the oldest profession. And I say, no, it's the oldest oppression. So, however, in the eyes of the law, it's a bit different. Um, but it, de- it depends on the state that you're in on how those laws um, work. So some states have what's called safe harbor laws. So meaning that there's that's a decriminalized and that you will not be penalized in the eyes of the law for for the for prostitution, sex work, whatever we're going to call it, or trafficking. And then um, oftentimes at the federal level, it has started to change so that if you do, if you are, if you say, I am a victim of human trafficking, there are safeguards that come into place that will protect you in the criminal justice system from being prosecuted. However, it really does depend on the state. It depends on you know, the, the region that you're in. But again, there has been some federal shifts to protect those who are victimized. And in my opinion, again, like, there very rarely is sex work or prostitution without trafficking. Just the nature of it is that someone is being oppressed. Someone is being taken advantage of. And there is you know, there's always the one-off that people will point to, but I always find that 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 is just like a such a rare occurrence that there's not someone who is profiting off of of this person. Yeah, I was reading the isn't. statistics. It was like 85% are trafficked and 15%. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, 15% are said they are not trafficked, but that doesn't mean they do it because they want to. It, they do it because they're forced into it because of necessity maybe. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's exactly right. So for me, it's really hard to separate the fact that we know that the average age of entry into into the sex trade, into trafficking in the United States is 15 years old. So for me, was it ever a choice? And, you know, in my opinion, I just I can't separate that even if you are, quote unquote, making the choice at 19 years old, but your abuse and your trafficking started when you were 14, 15 years old. This was never a choice. And I want to be very clear. I support decriminalization across the board because I don't think that we should ever punish those who are, again, quote unquote, choosing sex work because it's what they were left with, you know, because they're trying to feed their child or stay in their house or, you know, appease an oppressor. Like, I don't think that these are other crimes that we should, we should punish. I think that we should address the inequalities with women, that we should address wage gap. We should address like how we view women in society and the opportunities that we're providing. And oftentimes, again, these are marginalized people who are who are being forced into this one way or another, but I do still firmly support criminalizing the the predators, the traffickers, the pimps, and also the buyers. So I think that that's an underlooked sector who is um, helping perpetuate this violence against women, this oppression. Yeah. So in our world, it's called um, being an abolitionist. So. Fair enough. Um, So I want to talk about, uh, the Guardian Group. I, I know the Guardian Group is mostly involved in education and also in the interdiction, I guess, or the the the, the interdiction maybe too military term, but basically the uh, the assistance in d- discovering the pimps and also finding the victims and then informing the the um, the the authorities. And they probably don't have a lot to do with the aftercare, but do when they're informing the authorities, do they also have reach out to um, 
the victims advocates that maybe the police aren't thinking about and stuff? Do you guys do you guys do that as well, or do you just turn everything to lower authorities and then they go off and do it? And maybe they would do it right, maybe they do it wrong. We work really hard with the partners that uh, we have to train and educate them and to incur and to ensure that they are following that protocol because that is best practices. It's trauma informed. So, for instance, you know, Guardian Guardian Group provides sector specific training in a variety of areas. So, even uh, I've been working a lot recently in training the um, healthcare sector. So, even when we're speaking with like emergency department doctors or um, hospital administrators to build into their protocol that they need to also remember to call an advocate if you know if that's what the if the person wants. So again, in the healthcare community, it can be interesting if that person's over the age of eighteen. Communicating, I teach, communicate exactly what the options are, dispel some of the lies, as long as like you have that person alone and then it's a safe space. And then if they want, you know, ensure that you call a victim's advocate to help come out. And if police are involved, ensuring that a victim's advocate at least knows that the police are coming and that they might need to be at what we call on call. So they may not come out unless they're asked. Um, however, they will be aware that there's a situation occurring. And so they can start to gather some of those supplies, you know, to find a safe house, to get clothes. They'll ask, you know, can you give us the size, what she may need? And so they'll start to set up things, even if it doesn't, even if that plan doesn't get deployed, they're getting ready. So we teach across the board to ensure that victims advocates are are involved in the process and in, in the planning process, even if they don't ever come in contact with a victim in that in that scenario. So are victims advocates, is that um is that a degree someone gets or is it a, a, a subsection of a therapist or or is it just some training uh, a six-month training program how does someone get qualified in that yeah that's a really great question and one that I think is important because not all programs are created the same so that is another thing at guardian group that one of my favorite things about guardian group is that we are a connector across the country so you know, we, I may not know every little thing all the time, but I know who to call. I know who is doing it the best. And because I worked in the aftercare space for such a long time, um, I, I can vet, you know, aftercare spaces across the country to ensure that they are licensed, that they are accredited. And that because often, sometimes people get into the space with really good hearts, but not with the um, the tools necessary to provide the, the support that is needed. And because of the level of trauma, it is so very important that we are bringing the right people into this space so that we don't do more harm. And that's something to be very careful about. So sometimes people will call me law enforcement, healthcare across the country and say, you know, who do you know in this region that is doing this work well? And I'll be able to point to those to those aftercare spaces across the country. Um, and I think that a victim's advocate can be, there's a couple of different options. So, you know, if there, if a program is federally funded, there are federally funded programs, um, conferences that a person will go to to receive training and education. There's ongoing tools, online training, there's internal training. Oftentimes these people will have like an MSW, which is a master's in social work, but not necessarily. Some victims advocates have what we call lived experience, meaning they themselves were a victim of trafficking and now they've gone through their healing process and are in a place where they can provide support to someone else. And they would still have gone through some training and education, but they inherently already understand this crime because they've experienced it. So it could be lived experience. It could be somebody who has a degree in social work 
I personally don't have a degree in social work. My, my degree is in international business and finance, but I went through training programs and education and, and, and ongoing education. So the, the program that I worked for really took it quite seriously, um, the ongoing education and training in this space. And, and I was actually never a victim's advocate. I ran a program and hired victim's advocates, but did have a, a strong knowledge and working background in, in that space. But we were very careful about the people that we brought onto the team to provide those services and that outreach. Um, but yeah, so I think that the, the victims advocates can look a little bit different, have different, you know, letters behind their names or experience, but it is a, you know, an education piece in some capacity or that of lived experience. But there is, there is like a card carrying, I'm a victim advocate certified by something that when you hired them, you're like, oh, you have a master's social work. Great. You uh, did, you had experience here. You had experience here. Do you have your victim's advocate card or, or certification or whatever is, is that, I mean, is that like one of the check mark requirements that they have to go to five hours of or whatever? Yes, exactly. So for me personally, when we hired people, we, we really brought, um, brought people on that either had a background in counseling or social work. And then once they were hired, they go, they would go through an online training and then in-person training through uh, through our grantor, so through the federal government, they they would go to you know a conference and receive you know on-site training and then be linked to resource ongoing education and tools through that process as well. Before okay. then, they would be like released to go work directly, and then there was you know some supervisory uh, pieces as well where you know in the beginning we would send them out with another more seasoned. Um, advocate until they had um, gotten off what's called a probationary period. Yeah. Right. So, so, uh, but a a victim's advocate by itself going with the police or whatever is a representation of a bunch of uh, other services that aren't necessarily under that person's control. Right. They, they know resources. They know halfway houses. They know boys and girls clubs, they know um, what they know. All the things that are available, and they have phone numbers and maybe relationships with these people. But and their job is to get this victim the help that she needs, especially in the first seventy-two hours. But and and she may be affiliated with one specific one, but she also know uh, alternatives if that's full. Is that is that correct? Am I am I am I expressing that correctly? Yes, and I think that is in a best case scenario, and that's something that I would always strive in our advocates is to, yes, that person is, and that person is going to become that, um, the person who is, is been victimized, their kind of point of contact. It's going to become their safe person because you don't want to bring a whole host of people in and out and constantly being asked like, oh, fill out this form and like, oh, just go to this this office and they'll help you. It's like right. that victim's advocate is really there to walk beside them to help them in that fragile state of of restoration and getting help um and and to never judge i think that's the most important thing is that victims advocates it's so important that they approach every situation with zero judgment and zero agenda like i'm not going to show up as your victim's advocate and be like i need you to get help today like we're gonna rescue you because that's not what is happening it is i'm going to be here for you today in this moment and every day forward that you ask for my help but i'm not going to force anything there is no judgment and if you decide to go back to your trafficker for whatever reason but then in 6 months you call me i'm just going to be there with the same the same heart the same passion the same lack of judgment and 
and provide you with whatever you need in that moment because it really is about building a long-term relationship and building trust, which can be very difficult and it doesn't happen overnight. You know, you don't show up and you're like, I'm a victim's advocate and I'm here to help. And that, and that person's like, yay, I'm so excited. Thank you. It's really, it's really about showing up providing support, providing services that they need in that moment. Is it, you know, whatever that might be. And then doing your best to stay in, in contact with that person and doing your best to build that relationship and that rapport that they will trust you and they will come back. And when they are ready to, for help or, or they need something that they know that they have a safe person that they can call, that's always shown up for them, that's on their side and they can trust. So um, just going back what, to what I uh, just said. So the victim's advocate has links to all these, all these um, support networks. And then their, their job basically is to kind of make face to face or, or phone to face or whatever with the victim as often as necessary, or she wants, he or she wants and just say, Hey, what do you need today? What are you having difficulty with? What can I help you with? I'm here for you. And as long as she wants that help and, uh, and, and, and then if she needs another resource, like I'm ready to go back to work, then she reaches out to another source and says, Hey, I, need, I have a victim here. This is, this is her skills. She needs a job. What do you got? And she helps her through every bit of the process to kind of get back on the road to health. Yep, exactly. And I think, you know, Jeff and the rest of the team at Guardian Group will always tease me that I know everybody in town. Like, if you need to know somebody, I'll just ask Amanda. She knows everybody in town. And I think that is because of my work in that exact space of knowing who are the resources, who can I call, like, who is willing to provide people with jobs, who is willing, you know, where are the shelters, where are, you know, is it, you know, who childcare resources um, there are you know like family relief nurseries if we need to get you know uh, early childhood care for uh, a child but with you know no resources and you need scholarships or whatnot I, I usually know the link of someone in town and I think you know best case scenario an advocate is very connected to the community has great working relationships with the community and can link that person where they need to be. Yeah, to me, that would be the ideal, you know, victim's advocate, the person who knows everybody, who can figure it out, you know, even when everyone's like, hey, we're all full. I was like, well, there's got to be someone who's not. And I know who that person is. Of course, you you watch all the, the you know, movies and TV series and stuff. And there's there's always that, I guess she's a victim's advocate who's like, okay, you can come home and stay with me tonight. And that pro- hopefully that probably really rarely happens because it sounds very dangerous, but... That is very dangerous, and that would be what we we would in the field call crossing a line and crossing a boundary. It's really important to remain in this professional space, even though we sometimes can just, you know, we want to help so badly um, because we do care. We didn't get into this space because we don't care about people, but it is important for our safety and for the safety of the person that we're serving that those those boundaries are never crossed, and that you know, and sometimes that means making really hard choices, and sometimes it means that you don't get to do everything that you wanted to do in that day, but you do the best that you can. And it can be really hard. I mean, I've had not often, but nights where I get to go home to my nice house and the warmth and, and have a family. And it seems really unfair. You know, I've sat out on my back porch and like cried hysterically like to myself of just like the, the injustice of the world. 
but you you jeopardize yourself and the future work because you always have to remember that your you know it's not always just about today it's it's about being there 10 years from now it's about the person tomorrow it's about their long-term safety you know even though you know because these situations are never black and white they're always very gray there's always so many elements and and you just want to help, but you have to do it in a way that is appropriate and keeps everyone safe because long-term that will be better for the person that you are trying to help. And you have to be, you have to be concerned about uh, as a victim advocates, your health, because if something happens to you, you can't help anybody else. So, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of the same thing with police, firemen, everybody, you know, you can, you can, you can be emotionally involved, but if you're at risk and you can't, you aren't there the next day to help someone, then that doesn't help it. That doesn't help everybody in the future too. Exactly. Um, I guess the, uh, my question also would be once you, once you're out there and you're like helping these people and then they go back and you say, I'll always be here. Is there a danger that they'll call you in and the trafficker or the pimp will hold it against you that you tried to help her and take her out of the life. Is that, is that ever a danger? That sounds like it would be, but I don't know. I think when you're working in this space, there's always an element of, of risk. And so that's why it's so important to be trained appropriately and to have the appropriate protocols in your own organization to ensure that you aren't crossing those lines that could jeopardize your safety. And to be very careful, you know, about how we share information and how we, um, you know, and, and it can be really difficult because in small communities, like you can run into somebody downtown, right. you know, it's not like we're in New York City all the time, or, you know, these are sometimes just more rural communities and you may see someone you know, or someone you've been working with. So yes, there's an element of risk, but it, and I think, um, you know, it's, it's inherent in the job. And you just do the best you can to mitigate that risk and you keep really good relationships with law enforcement and you follow, follow protocol. And again, it doesn't always go perfectly and there's situations that arise that you have to deal with and it can be sometimes a bit scary, um, but the work, the work is still worth doing. So, yeah. and I think for some people there is what we call burnout, Yeah. Um, especially when you have an organization that doesn't stick to the, you know, to the, their own protocol and procedures. And you'll see that that's um, when organizations aren't, um, maybe need a little bit more infrastructure and a little more guidance. You'll get what's called a burnout of people who are just emotionally exhausted because they aren't, um, aren't, you know, taking care of themselves, whether it be emotionally or physically. So um, it's, it's really important to have, you know, to, go into this work knowing that it will be difficult and that you have to, you know, build in, in safety nets and, and barriers to protect yourself and that they're there for a reason. Who do the victim's advocate work for if they don't work for the police force and they don't necessarily work for the halfway houses, then are they working for the state or the city, uh, non nonprofit, all of the above? Oftentimes they do work for a nonprofit who may also be the person who oversees the shelter. So um, 
oftentimes shelters do have victims advocates, police um, forces will sometimes as well, or maybe the county might have one or a district, like um, a district attorney's office might also have a victim's advocate. So like a victim of a crime advocate and those, um, those individuals may not have the extensive training that they need for human trafficking specific, but they are trained to work with those who are victims of a crime. So Again, best case scenario is that someone who is very specific to, a, you know, a human trafficking victim is advocate, but that's not always the case depending on the resources available in that area. But yeah, oftentimes those victims advocates will work for a nonprofit that's associated with some of the services that those the people who have been victimized will receive. Okay. So last question. Uh, I, I, we, we talked about the first 72 hours is uh, fulfilling all the physical needs of the victim. What does... Uh, you know, a step in the right direction that they accept the, the, uh, the services, they find a place to sleep, they get fed, they get clothes, they get a time to think about their life and they want to, uh, take a step in the right direction. Uh, I guess everyone's different depending on their education and their skills. But, um, I, I guess I don't know how, how you'd answer this question except to give a list of the different, uh, the other services that they offer. Yeah. So it, again, it looks very um, unique to each individual of where they're at and what they need. So in some instances, it may be reunification with family. Mm. So getting that person back to their family where they can start that healing process in, in the context of, of their family unit. If, you know, and maybe that's not an option. So uh, it could be counseling services. Um, it can be job training, uh, education. It can look like going back to school. It can look like just showing up every day to, you know, to, to speak with someone. It can be, um, you know, accessing if addiction was uh, played a role in the trafficking. It could be seeking, you know, addiction support services. Um, and, you know, really it is just like step-by-step step unique to that individual. It can be getting into long-term shelter. So, you know, let, let's say that a person that doesn't have a place to live is, is um, going to be experiencing homelessness and they need a long-term shelter. So maybe finding a women's shelter that's appropriate, that's more long-term. So a transitional living program is what those are called that are, are for longer periods of time, uh, you know, sometimes up to 24 months. So it could be getting enrolled in that. And then once enrolled in those um, transitional living programs, there's usually other steps that can be taken. It could be getting on to, you know, uh, to like a, a health plan, like through the state or, or county so that they can start accessing medical services more regularly and mental health services. It can be going to, you know, your local um, unemployment department or employment department and, and starting the job searching process. So it really looks different for everybody, but you know, it is baby steps and it can be two steps forward and 17 steps back. Um, but it's every day trying to take one of those steps forward, even if it means that sometimes we fall back a bit and we just, you know, you, you know, you start to just walk that path of healing and recovery and it takes time. And anybody who's ever gone through crisis in their life knows that if you're going through something big and emotional, that there are setbacks all along the way, but, and sometimes it's hard to see the forest through the trees. So, you know, it's just remembering that, you know, if, if you do the work, it can get better. And so it can, and that can be really difficult, but so there will be some days where it, you know, healing looks like not leaving the house. Healing looks like, um, you know, 
being wrapped in a blanket and watching Netflix, you know, for a day. Um, healing can look a lot of different ways, but hopefully, you know, it is making connection, positive connection and taking, you know, a couple of steps forward every, whenever you can. That's thanks for all the great information, Amanda. Uh, that's, that's, I mean, I didn't, I guess when I started this podcast, I didn't really understand all the different elements that have to come together to, I mean, it seems like it's so easy for people to get trafficked and so difficult to get them out of it. And it requires, a, you know, a village, for lack of a better word, you know, to, of all these people and services and, you know, uh, uh, you know, support and, uh, you know, uh, you know, basically, if I was looking at this as a military mission, you got to get the civil affairs and the psyops and, you know, you got to get the psych on board and Green Berets need to be on standby and all this stuff. And then also the the whole rescue, the POW hostage guys got to get on board and, you know, make sure they get integrated back into society successfully. And it's just crazy uh, how how much effort is it takes to to do this? And I'm I, I'm I'm really glad that there's people out there like you guys, like you Amanda and Guardian Group, to to kind of be a piece of that and and try to get all these pieces put together for these victims. It's awesome. I think the other important part about Guardian Group and all the things that you just listed of the level of care and the what a person who's been victimized has to go through to, to receive healing and like, and how hard that will be to heal from this trauma is it's so important. And this is what guardian group does the best is prevent future victims because more than anything is I never want to have another person have to, you know, go through this process to, to experience this level of abuse and trauma and then put those pieces back together is difficult. And, you know, more than anything, I just want there to never be another young person, woman, man, child, anybody who ever experiences the horror of trafficking. So we can just keep happy, healthy adults who receive, who, you know, achieve their full human potential because that's the world I want to live in is where all kids, you know, get the opportunity to flourish and be their little best selves, you know, and go on to be, moms and dads and school teachers and, you know, whatever they want to be, you know, rather than walking the hard path of recovery. Yeah. Okay. I think that's, uh, that's a good stopping point for uh, this episode. Uh, anything, any final uh, observations there, Amanda or Jeff? No, I think, you know, from my end, we covered kind of the basics of aftercare and, and what it takes to um, what kind of pieces need to put into, be put into place and, and how people can, you know, contact Guardian Group if they have questions about their region. Yeah, I'll put who, all the information for contacting them at the end because yeah, uh, yeah. that's the whole purpose of this uh, podcast. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, um, and thank right. you. No, thank you. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk to you again. If you enjoyed this episode, please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. If you need help with a potential trafficking situation, please contact your local law enforcement agency or call the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 888-373-7888 or text HELP to 233-733. 
Resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes at www.guardiangroup.org slash podcast. If you'd like to donate to the fight against human trafficking, please go to www.guardiangroup.org slash donate. If you have a question you would like answered on a future episode, please send it to contact at guardiangroup.org.